it's on. <laughs> okay. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Luke 10, uh, verses 25 to 37, and it's on page 735 in your pew Bible if you're using that. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit in eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these men, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Good morning. Again. <laughs> Switch hats. Um, I know many of you know that I love to read. And lately, some of my reading has been uh, from the juvenile section of the library. I brought another one of my favorite books today. Uh, Horton, Here's a Who. Anybody familiar with this book? Well, Horton, Here's a Who is um, one of... Horton is one of my favorite Seuss uh, characters. He just seems to be the ultimate Christian. I don't know. He just seems, you know, he hatched the egg for that silly bird that flew off to Rio um, when he didn't need to. And today, we're going to talk about him hearing the who. Um, so if you're familiar with the story, you know that the story opens with Horton taking a lovely splash in the pool in the jungle of Newell, and he was just enjoying himself. And all of a sudden, he hears this little cry for help. Now, when I'm taking a splash in the pool, I'm not usually listening for people calling for help, especially a little tiny voice way far away. But Horton heard it, and Horton said, oh my goodness, I have to do something about this. And so he searched, and he searched, and he finally saw this little itty-bitty speck floating through the air. And he realized that there was somebody on that speck. Now, the other animals in the jungle thought he was pretty crazy. 
they always thought Horton was crazy anyway, when he was hatching the egg and all that stuff. But they were like, there's nobody on that. You can't, there's, it's too small. He said, no, I'm sure there's somebody on that, that dust speck. So I'm going to land it on a, on a little um, clover and see if I can figure out what's going on. So we have, uh, here's Horton seeing the tiny speck. It's so tiny, you can hardly even see it. And then he land, it lands on the clover, and he protects it. But all the other animals think, you're crazy. There, there's it on the little speck on the little clover. The other animals try to take it away from him. They try to get it into the pool of the water to drown the people that are on there. And Horton says, no, a person's a person no matter how small. And so I'm going to protect this person that's on here. He comes to find out it's not just one person. It's a whole town of people. And they're so afraid that they're going to land in that pool of water and drown. But Horton saves them, and he carries it carefully and keeps it safe, even though the sour kangaroo just laughs at him, and so does her little baby Joey, laughs at him too. And the, the monkeys, the Wickersham brothers, oh my goodness, they're, they're awful. They try to steal it, and then they get a black-bottom eagle to come and take it and throw it in. You ready for this? You know where they throw it? Let's find that page. It's kind of a kind of scary thing. Where is it? Uh, where'd it go? I should have put a marker in it. <laughs> there it is. Into a whole field of clovers. How is Horton going to find that one clover with that itty bitty speck on it in this whole field of clovers? But a person's a person, no matter how small. And so Horton goes through each and every one of those clovers till he finds it. That reminds me about Jesus and the lost sheep. I think that's coming. So we might have to visit Horton again. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> Jesus does that. He went through everywhere looking for each one of us. And he wants us to take care of our neighbors. These, these people on the, the speck of dust, Horton didn't know them. He wasn't even like them. He's an elephant. They were hooves. He could have just said, oh, yeah, fine, bye-bye. I'm enjoying my pool. I'm not going to worry about you. But he did. He took care of them. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be like Horton, to remember that a person's a person no matter how small. And a neighbor is our neighbor, no matter how far away or near up they are, or how much they're like us or how different they are from us. Because that's what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Sometimes we get laughed at. Sometimes we get put in jail. They put Horton in a cage because they thought he was crazy. Um, but it's okay, because that's, God's with us. And God is going to help us and protect us when we are doing what he has called us to do. So a person's a person no matter how small, and a neighbor's a neighbor no matter 
where they are. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have given us messages through stories, through images, to help us understand who you are and who you want us to be. It's sometimes hard to love our neighbors, Lord, because sometimes they're not very likable. But we're reminded we don't necessarily have to like somebody to love them. And you loved us all, no matter what. You even loved us before we were born. So we thank you for your love. And we thank you for the call you have put on our lives to be a neighbor to everyone, no matter who they are, how big or how small, how close to us they are or how far away they are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning again. This is becoming a habit. And it's always good to say good morning. All right. So, it was a good thing this week I had two ideas and I couldn't decide which one. So, now you're getting part two. All right. So, I brought a few things. Um, a heart and some roses. What do those remind you of? A what? Valentine's Day. Love. Okay, excellent. When we want to show somebody we love them, sometimes we give hearts or we draw hearts on notes that we send them. Uh, we send them Valentine cards. We send them cards that say we love them. Sometimes we give flowers. Roses especially are generally a symbol of love. Although I never quite figured out because it's got, they usually have thorns on them. Hmm. Hmm? Uh, so does love. Love has thorns sometimes. Well, I brought something else that I think also shows love. Anybody want to guess what it is? Huh? Nope. Work gloves. Work gloves. Because sometimes, showing love, we have to get our hands dirty. Maybe it's um, raking leaves for someone who can't get out and rake their leaves. Or maybe it's gardening for someone who needs help in their garden. Or cleaning for somebody who needs help cleaning. Um, it could be any number of things. But sometimes we have to get our hands dirty to show someone that we love them. And I think that's the kind of the meaning of the story for today, the Good Samaritan. The priest, when he went by the person that was robbed and dying, if he touched that person, he would be unclean. And he would have to go through a whole bunch of rituals to become clean again to do his job. So he didn't want to get his hands dirty. The same with the Levite. He didn't want to touch that man because if he touched him, he'd also be unclean. And you know, they had things to do, places to go and people to see. But they didn't have time to be unclean. I think sometimes we miss that part of the story. We just think, oh, well, that priest was just kind of not very good of a priest. But the, the, the whole concept of being unclean. Hmm. Now, the Samaritan, Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. I hope you know that, right? And the man that was robbed and left for dead was probably Jewish. The Samaritan, by rights, should have just said, I don't know you, you're my enemy, let me walk away and pretend I never saw you. 
But he didn't do that. He got right down there with that man and got his hands dirty. He cleaned up the blood. He cleaned up the, the wounds. He wasn't afraid to touch the man. And I have to think, and it doesn't say it, but I have to think that he was made clean by doing that. I don't know. That's just my weird take on it, but I think by him being willing to touch somebody who was sick and dying and bloody and dirty, somehow or other cleaned inside of him. But he didn't just stop there. He took the man and took him to a safe place and paid for him to be able to stay there and recuperate a little bit. And he told the innkeeper, whatever else I owe you, I'll pay you the next time I see you, okay? But just take good care of this guy, because it's important to me. Why would a stranger be that important, especially an enemy stranger? Hmm. And then I thought, hmm, today is Communion Sunday. We have a good high priest, Jesus. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He came from heaven. He had it all up there. He came down here to be a human being just like us. And he worked alongside of us. And he got his hands dirty. He helped fishermen. He washed feet. And he took all of our sin onto him and made himself dirty for us. He had no sin. There was no sin in him. But he went to the cross, that dirty, bloody, awful cross, to take our sins. He became dirty so that we could become clean. We have an amazing God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was not afraid to get his hands dirty, that he was not afraid to come down from heaven to be with us, one with us, to show us the way, to show us how to get our hands dirty, how to help those that are in need. He wasn't afraid to touch lepers or blind people or beggars or even tax collectors. He wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty to do your will. He wasn't afraid to deal with people that were different. So help us, Lord, to see through his eyes, to be his hands, to be his mouth of peace, bringing comfort and joy and hope to those who are struggling. And we think about that, Lord, now as we prepare to come to his table. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Central Baptist Church. Happy May. I am sorry to not be with you this morning in person, um, but I'm glad that we still have this way of um, learning together from scripture, from the parables. Um, let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. Um, thank you for your healing power. Thank you for um, these ways that we can continue to learn together and worship together, even when we're not together. We pray that we will hear from you today in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I, um, a couple of months ago, painted, you might know that I've been doing a lot of watercoloring and painting on my days off lately, for whatever reason. And a few months ago, I painted this picture that I dreamed, basically, you know, I have wacky dreams, I'm going to try to show it to you. Okay, so it's kind of a weird picture. But, um, and hopefully, hopefully it's recording and it's recording. Um, for some reason, even though it's bizarre, Paul and I both liked it enough that we decided to frame it and put it up on a wall in our house. And so I took it to Michael's to get it framed. Um, but I had to make some decisions about what kind of mat, especially I wanted. The frame mattered, but also the mat, the whole thing around it was going to make a difference. If I got a darker color mat or frame that was that kind of pulled in these greens, that was going to change the way that this picture appeared. It was going to change the tone of the, the feeling, even the emotions behind this picture. If I chose some of these lighter, brighter colors, that was going to change the tone. Again, I ended up going with this kind of orangey, sort of like the tail here. Anyway, um, so this is something to keep in mind when we are talking about Jesus' parables because they are stories within stories. Um, there's a frame story, and then there's the parable that's the story that Jesus is telling. And both pieces are important, and the frame story helps us understand what's happening in the parable. So today... Um, we're going to talk about the Good Samaritan, as you know, and we're going to start by looking at the frame. The character, there are two characters in the frame. We don't know. Usually it seems like Jesus was always in these crowds of people. And so probably he was in this particular instance, but we don't, there's nothing in Luke that really tells us that it was a big crowd. There's just this expert of the law in the law and Jesus. And so we know something about Jesus, but maybe we don't know a whole lot about this expert in the law. So let's talk about him for a second. The expert in the law is a Jewish person, a man who has dedicated his life to studying and applying the Jewish scripture. And so he knows the Bible inside and out. The Bible at this point is the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, what Christians call the Old Testament. And um, this guy knows it backwards and forwards. And you may find, um, if you know Jewish people, that this is not that uncommon. Um, lots of especially observant Jewish people, more Orthodox Jewish people know their Bible really, really, really well. Um, and that Knowing that gives us a little bit of understanding of why this guy is testing Jesus. Now, we know that there were the teachers of the law, the experts in the law, and Pharisees who often were trying to test Jesus because they were trying to trick him. They were trying to trap him into saying something um, that could get him into trouble. And that could be what's happening here. Um, but it's not always. In some ways, it could just be this guy is testing Jesus in the sense that you would. <laughs> if you're an expert in something and you think somebody else maybe has some 
knowledge about it too, and you're trying to see the extent of their knowledge, you, you test them a little bit. Um, a few weeks ago, Ron was outside praying during prayer on the spot, and a man came by and started talking to him, and he said, oh, are you praying in, out here? And and um, and Ron said, yep, and the, and the man was obviously a Christian, and he, but he wasn't sure, I think, maybe because you guys have a woman pastor. <laughs> um, he wasn't sure if maybe Ron was totally a Christian. And so he started asking Ron um, about his faith and where he would go if he were to die. And um, that is maybe sort of what's happening here. Um, we do we do this to each other sometimes, right? We just, we kind of want to know where people stand. And so this Jewish expert is doing that too. We're going to find out though that Jesus is a little more of an expert than the expert. So what is the expert's question? What is his, the, the guy talking to Ron said, do you know what where you'll be if you die tonight? And this guy asks a question too. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A parable is coming, but it doesn't come right away. The parable comes in answer to another question, but the parable in the end is also going to address this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the core question for this passage and maybe the gospels in general. So because it's the core question, we need to make sure that we understand what the question is really asking. Eternal life means what? Walter Lyfield says it means the life of the kingdom. We talked about the life of the kingdom for most of last year when we were looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's, it is life with God. It is life um, that comes out of us from God. It is life that is restorative, that brings shalom. It's not in the Bible, eternal life never, never only means living forever and ever in heaven. That idea actually comes more from some like Greek philosophy and other religion type stuff that we've kind of absorbed into our Christian culture. But um, for a long time, like it's not just American, <laughs> but um, but that is not really the Jewish understanding of eternal life, and it's not really Jesus' understanding of eternal life. Um, yes, we go to be with the Lord when we die, but the ultimate hope of both, at least the later Old Testament and the New Testament, is that one day God is going to come to earth to reign. We are going to reign with him. All things will be well on earth as in heaven. So this is what this Jewish expert in the law is asking about. And he asks, it's interesting because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is something about this question and Jesus doesn't say you're asking the wrong question or like, yeah, you don't really understand the theology of this very well because this guy is an expert. He does actually understand it. 
he understands that eternal life, this kingdom life, this kind of on earth as it is in heaven life involves action on our part. It doesn't mean that we earn our way into the kingdom, into eternal life. But listen to this. This guy isn't saying, how do I merit eternal life? He's saying, how do I inherit eternal life? Inheritance comes from being part of the family. We don't earn our inheritance, usually. (laughs) It's something that we inherit. It's part of our family. It gets passed down to us. But if we are going to be part of this family that gains this inheritance, we have to continue to operate as part of the family. We have to live as part of the family. We have to um, promote the family name well. And so this expert, he's Jewish. He is a member of the chosen people of God. And so he's not asking how to get in. He's asking for Jesus' interpretation of how to live the life of the family or of the kingdom. So how does Jesus answer him? With a question. (laughs) Jesus does this a lot. His question to the question is basically, you're the expert. What What does the law say? And so the expert answers and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is pretty interesting. This speaks kind of well for this guy, whether he has overheard other conversations with Jesus about this topic or or it's just because he's an expert in the law. He answers the question correctly. Um, In other places, there are law experts who ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And this is Jesus' answer. But this guy comes up with it himself. He identifies these two laws, love God with everything you are and love people as much as you love yourself. And he identifies those as the things that sum up the whole law. And so Jesus is like, yep, right answer. That's what you have to do. Well, so here we get the first hint of a crack in the expert's expertise. Um, He knows the right answer, but does he do the right answer? We're going to see that he's a little bit more honest, at least, than the rich young ruler. There's the story about Jesus encountering a rich young ruler, and um, when he's confronted with how to inherit eternal life, he says, oh, I already do all that stuff. Well, this guy clearly knows he doesn't do all that stuff perfectly because it says, our text says, wanting to justify himself. He doesn't actually believe that he himself has been fully obeying these two seemingly simple laws. Wanting to justify himself is basically saying, wanting to get himself off the hook. He's trying to figure out a way that he can be okay with the level to which he has been loving God and his neighbor, I guess. So he says, who's my neighbor? 
Dr. Craig Keener says Jewish teachers usually use neighbor to mean fellow Israelite, though it could also apply to any non-Israelite in the land. So it's kind of like he's saying, hopefully my neighbor is just fellow Jews. Because <laughs> I am good with loving those people, but uh, I don't really want to be taken to account for these other people, whoever they are. Um, doesn't really seem like that's a good way to get himself off the hook, though. Maybe you just don't draw attention <laughs> to yourself. Um, anyway, so he says, who's my neighbor? Here's a crazy thing. He's part of the family. If fellow Jews are part of the family, then everybody else is the neighbor, right? So what's the answer to his question? This part drives me crazy that we're not together. So you could actually answer me. But um, he, he says, who's my neighbor? What's the answer? We know, we know the answer. Everyone, right? Everyone. Why doesn't Jesus just say everyone? Well, I think it's because sometimes straight answers don't actually make as much of a difference as questions, which we've already seen Jesus ask, or parables, stories. Those are the things that actually start to change what's happening in here instead of just what's happening in here. And once this changes, everything we do outside changes. So now we come to the parable. That's the frame. Here's the parable. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What do we know about this man? Nothing, nothing. There's nothing we know about this man. We can infer that he's probably Jewish because this is a story told by a Jewish man to a Jewish person. Um, we know that this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. But here's an interesting thing. It's actually important that we don't know anything else about this man. In parables, sometimes what we can't know is as important as what we can know. For us, it's a little, it's kind of hard to um, distinguish the difference between these two things. So some things we can, we could know, we would definitely know if we were this Jewish expert living in the first century, talking to Jesus face to face, we would have the same cultural understandings and all that stuff. We don't have them as 21st century Americans. Fine, but we can find these things out, right? But we don't know anything about this guy, nothing. And the expert in the law also knows nothing about this guy. We don't know more than the expert. He doesn't know more than us about this guy. What we can know, because we can look at history and because we have this story, is that is something about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what we can know about it is it's dangerous at least at this time, it was dangerous. It was known to be a place where bandits and thugs would hang out. And so this man gets jumped by thugs. They take his clothes. He's left half dead. Okay. Then we have two passers-by. They don't come by at exactly the same time, um, but we can kind of lump them together because they basically do the same thing. There's a priest and there's a Levite. They see the guy, they bypass him, and they don't just like walk past him, but they walk past on the other side of the road from where he's lying. 
we need to know a little bit about priests and Levites here. So all priests were Levites. Levite, um, Levi was a tribe. Levi was a son of um, Jacob, whose name got changed to Israel. And so all the people in this tribe that came from the son, Levi, um, were connected to the helping the people worship God. Not all of them were priests. So all of the priests were from the tribe of Levi, but not all Levites were priests. Okay. It's kind of like, not, not identical, but sort of like, and this isn't even always true, but <laughs> just as a generalization, let's say this, um, all pastors are Christians, but not all Christians are pastors, right? All of us at Central Baptist Church are Christians, but not all of you are pastors. Um, we're all basically from the same tribe, the tribe of Jesus, but um, we don't all have the same roles, we, but we're all connected to the worship of God in the temple. And so there are certain things that we have to, um, that we try to abide by, that we want to do to honor God and to keep ourselves pure in God's eyes. And so this is how it is for these two guys. They are required by ritual law in the Old Testament, in their, in their Bible, um, to take extra care to keep themselves pure. They have to take extra care to keep themselves clean. And one of those specific things they had to do was keep away from dead bodies. And if they were going to touch a dead body, they would have to do all kinds of complicated rituals to cleanse themselves, to purify themselves. So we don't know anything about this guy. The expert in the law who's listening to the parable doesn't know anything about this guy that's on the side of the road. Even the priest and the Levite know nothing about this guy. They can't even tell if he's dead or not. But what they can see is this dude who's lying on the road in a heap. He's probably not moving. You can't tell if he's breathing. He's such a mess that he could be dead. They don't know. They clearly don't get close enough to find out because they walk on the other side. What they do know is if they get close to this guy and he's dead, they will be contaminated under the terms of the law. And it's possible, since this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Maybe they're going from Jericho to Jerusalem and they're supposed to do something at the temple and they're, they're not going to have enough time to purify themselves before whatever it is that they're going there for. So they also know that this road is really dangerous. So if this happened to this guy, he's the proof that this road is really dangerous I have stuff to do. It's important stuff. It's God's stuff. I got to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to go. So they go and they maybe didn't have so, such terrible reasons to leave that guy on the side of the road. But if you really break down their reasons, they were afraid. Fear is the opposite of love. Fear is about preserving themselves. They were afraid of maybe of getting mugged too, or they were afraid of um, losing their status. They were afraid of being impure. They were afraid of not being able to do the job that God 
that they were supposed to do in the temple, um, all of those things were really things that they were afraid of bad things happening to them. Fear is what motivated their choice to pass the guy by on the side of the road. Love, hate is not the opposite of love, really. Fear is the opposite of love. Love is about sacrificing yourself. When this expert in the law correctly says that the way to inherit eternal life is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, he's talking about not feelings, not beliefs, but doings. Love is self-giving. The people in the family, this priest and this Levite, are not doing the family things for their own family member, because presumably this guy on the side of the road is at least Jewish. And then all of a sudden, this Samaritan comes along. What does he do? Well, we know, but let's pick it apart a little. It says, he came where the man was, which is interesting because with the priest and the Levite, we have the priest happened to be going down the same road and the Levite came to the place, but the Samaritan comes to where the man is. He approaches the man and he has compassion and takes pity. He bandages, disinfects, soothes the wounds. He sacrifices his own comfort and transportation. He puts the guy on his donkey instead of riding it himself. He brings the man to an inn and stabilizes him. And after he's stabilized, he pays the innkeeper two days wages and promises to pay more on his way back through if it's needed. So what do we know about this guy? We're not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. We already know about it. We've talked about it before in other sermons. We just know they, they did not get along with each other. And a large part of it was because the Samaritans were not neither ethnically pure nor religiously pure. And the Jews saw themselves as being both of those things. And so there was a lot of... Um, bad blood between them. We know this, but this story is so familiar that, and even the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans is so familiar that I think we need to come to terms with just how shocking Jesus is being by making the Samaritan the hero. This is another thing about parables that I think that Jesus employed anyway Jesus almost always says really, really startling things, shocking things, offensive things in his parables, but because they're stories, it's easier to hear them. You can know what he's saying, but um, he sort of um, makes it it's almost like earning the right to be heard. You can hear things better in a story that you maybe wouldn't be able to hear if somebody was just yelling at you, <laughs> telling you you're doing the wrong thing. So I want to give us a little bit of a sense of what 
this would feel like to this Jewish expert in the law when Jesus all of a sudden has, Jesus first of all has their people, a priest and a Levite, their holiest people, pass by this dying guy on the side of the road and then all of a sudden out of nowhere brings in a Samaritan who does the right thing. So um, there's, there's a mix of of people in our church. And I know that there are people online who will also listen to this, who probably come from other perspectives. So I just went the whole gamut. <laughs> I'm going to give some examples of people Jesus could have thrown in here if he was telling the story to us. Um, and if you hear something that you're like, well, why would that be offensive? And then you hear something that sounds really offensive, <laughs> just keep in mind, there's a broad span of people who follow Jesus who have very different perspectives on social things. So if Jesus had this conversation with someone at this church or in this cultural time period and general location, instead of a Samaritan, he could have cast a Democrat or a Republican, or an illegal immigrant, or a Trumper, or a Muslim, or an evangelical, or a trans person, or a non-affirming person, or a Black Lives Matter activist, or an anti-CRTer, any of those people he could have put in this role. So I'm going to ask you to sit with this story for a few seconds and imagine that you are the man half dead on the side of the road. And one of the people I just mentioned, the one that would make you the most uncomfortable, approaches you, touches you kindly, brings you somewhere safe, stabilizes you and pays your bills. Now, I will ask you to sit with this story for a few seconds and imagine that one of those people, <laughs> again, one who makes you most uncomfortable, is the person lying half dead on the side of the road. Are you the priest, the Levite, or the good neighbor? One reason that Jesus' parables work is because the listener or the reader is usually in some way or at some time all of the people. Sometimes you're the person who's half dead. I'm going to tell you, I felt half dead yesterday. <laughs> and, and after I do this, I'm going back to bed. Um, but I'm talking about sometimes we feel like 
emotionally half dead or spiritually half dead or maybe all the way dead like we are just at rock bottom we are not in a good place sometimes that's us sometimes we're that person and a lot of times when we are that person we feel unknown and unseen and passed by on the side of the road sometimes we're the priest we have actual work for God to do, whether we're in professional ministry or, um, or we're just doing something needed for the church on a regular basis. We have a role, um, and that's that's what we have to do. Um, to what degree does our role determine our level of compassion? How much? Does our responsibility, we should be responsible, right? But how much does that um, affect how we are with the people in our lives who need compassion? Or maybe we're the Levite. We're just your regular Christian. We go to church, we do what we can. That could be us too. And sometimes, and I know this is true, I think about every person in this church, we're the Good Samaritan. We give generously and compassionately, and we care for individual people, and we bring them to safe places, and we minister to them. I don't think hardly ever is there a person who isn't some mix of all of these. But this parable works because no matter which of these people we are at any given moment, it has something to say to us. Maybe something comforting and healing, maybe something challenging, maybe something affirming, but something. The other reason Jesus' parables work is that usually Jesus is in there too. Parables, the parables of Jesus present us with the kingdom, but also with Jesus himself and with different ways of responding to him, and we get to choose. So if the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This parable is basically Jesus saying, here are some options. Which one matches the answer you already know? So where or who is Jesus in this parable? I think he's in two places. He's the Good Samaritan. This is shocking. Just think about what we said about putting a Samaritan in here, how that's shocking to begin with. Jesus, this, this Good Samaritan in this parable shows us what Jesus is like, what Jesus' love is like. And so Jesus himself is identifying himself with the socially unacceptable, with the stranger, with the person who maybe doesn't we don't know if he has the right belief system or maybe doesn't have the correct ethnic or racial makeup or maybe doesn't have the right morals we don't really know jesus is identifying with that person also the samaritan has the wine wine in the gospels and in other parts of the bible is one of the symbols of the kingdom of God. This is why the 
miracle at Cana, um, when Jesus turned water into wine, was important. This is why Jesus did it. It was a symbol of the coming of the kingdom of God. And this Samaritan has wine that he uses to disinfect, to clean this man's wounds. I think Jesus is in this parable in another place too, though. He's also the man half dead on the side of the road. In Matthew 25, Matthew records Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. And we remember that parable where, um, you know, some people are the sheep and they're the people who helped the sick and the suffering and those in prison and those who are homeless and without clothes. And Jesus said, whenever you help those people, you do it for me. And the ghosts are the people who did not help those people. And Jesus said, when you didn't do, when you didn't help them, you were not helping me. So when we think about people who need help, according to Jesus in this parable, the worthiness of the people being helped when you know next to nothing about them is not sinner, but Jesus. The worth of Jesus is on this person. This is astonishing what Jesus is doing here, but we know that Jesus is also this man on the side of the road because he was wounded and beaten up and bruised for us. I was talking about this parable with someone last week and she said, the story isn't over though. And I realized a lot of times Jesus' parables don't really conclude. They feel like they conclude, but they don't really conclude. She was asking about the innkeeper. She says, we, we were kind of imagining together what could have happened. What, you know, what if the innkeeper didn't believe that the Samaritan was going to come back and pay him? And, you know, who, who is this innkeeper? We don't know anything about him either. But ultimately, my friend said, this parable gives me hope, though, that the good Samaritan that Jesus will come back, that I won't be broken forever, that healing will come. Healing will come. And that is the sign of communion, which we celebrated today. Communion, the recognition of our Lord who was outcast from the acceptable people and left for dead and actually died on a cross on the side of the road is in a way, a parable. Communion is the wine that cleans our wounds. Communion is the sign that full healing will come and everything is paid for. Communion is the promise that even though we were, and sometimes we still are, bad neighbors, Jesus loved his neighbors as himself, gave himself to us fully so that we could be not just neighbors, but family. Let's go and do likewise and inherit eternal life. Lord, thank you for this message for all of us. It's so challenging for me. Um, sometimes I let my responsibilities overrun your heart of compassion. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be wise and um, loving, compassionate, and faithful to you. 
and good neighbors. In the name and as the image of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who had mercy on us, go and do likewise. Amen. Lord willing, I'll see you guys next week. Bye.